Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? You are listening to Death by DVD, and this is Hank. Well, actually, you're listening to Hank, and this is Death by DVD, that you are also listening to. This episode begins in an unfortunate way that I otherwise would never begin an episode, and that is by telling you to stop, and if you have not seen the film and book, it's also a book, that we are going to discuss, you need to turn this episode off, go listen to another one, or even better, find the movie or the book, investigate that, and then come back. Because the horror film I'm going to discuss, and yes, I consider it a horror film, it's somewhat imperative to have the sense of surprise. I think it's what gives it its bestowed place in the horror genre, in fact. It's not a conventional horror movie, an abstract horror movie, an expressionistic horror movie. I mentioned it was also a book in which I would put it into the same category. It is a very simple but very complex film about the derangement of mind and memory. You spend most of your time traveling in this make-believe land, seeing things through the eyes of the protagonist, none of which you are certain to be real, you can't ever really establish because you are viewing things through the protagonist what actually is happening or what could have happened. All you are allowed to see is their broken puzzle pieces of memories attempted to be placed together. It is a paranoia, an anxiety-inducing, heartbreaking story. One which Roger Ebert aptly stated has no entry or exit. And that is something that is very important to keep in mind when we are going to attempt to discuss this tonight because... The beginning of the film is the ending of the book, and the ending of the book is the beginning of the film. So even if we decide to start at the end and try and make sense of it all, we really can't. Because if we're going to attempt to discuss both universes, which is going to be, and I strongly stress the word attempt, my goal tonight is to talk about the, the film universe and the movie universe, because these two things are, are very separate on their own, but they kind of meet beautifully in the middle at certain points, and maybe help make a little sense of it all, because this is a story that I've heard from people, and I've read in a lot of reviews that they struggle with, they have a hard time with, and I really enjoy it. In fact, it's one of my favorite pieces of work from the director, who is somebody I, I have talked about on the show endlessly for years and years and years. I hold in a great deal of esteem. In fact, there's a great misconception about me. There's a man that has a somewhat similar name to this gentleman, and a lot of people think that I, you know, pray at this guy's temple. You're wrong. It's this one. And I think I've danced around it long enough that I can finally unveil the title. We're talking about Spider 2002, the film by David Cronenberg, and the 1990 novel by Patrick McGraw. So if you haven't seen Spider, if you haven't read Spider, I'm not going to keep saying it twice. If you haven't seen Spider, thanks, you've listened long enough, I appreciate it. Come back after you've seen it. Check out next week's episode or one of the many beforehand on our website www.deathbydvd.transistor.fm or wherever you find podcasts at 
If you've seen Spider and you hated it, and if you've seen Spider and you loved it, if you are one of the rare ones that have read Spider and you just want to hear some thoughts about that, stay tuned. There is, this is, uh, this is going to be kind of difficult, really, because of the organization, or rather the disorganization of both the film and the novel, and I guess we, you know, just kind of have to jump in here. Let's not fuck around this week. I think that was our first use of adult language so far into the episode. That might be a record. How long are we, how long are we in here? Three minutes and 18 seconds. Oh, never mind. So let's try and start this with some semblance of structure and make it appear like I have notes and put some thought into this before just jumping into it. <laughs> let's try and talk about, and I'll keep saying that, I don't ever want to disillusion the audience nor lie to them. I will always say attempt and try. Let's attempt, or let's try, to discuss the duality of the book and movie. Because then if I totally get off subject and ramble about why I like Chex Mix for like 25 minutes, it's not my fault. I said I was going to try. You're the one that trusted me. It's your fault. I do. I am. I'm a big fan of Chex Mix, though. I prefer Gardetto's. I don't. I don't know if that's just like an East Coast thing, but I really. There's. Those are the preferred ones. Those are the fancy Chex Mix. I got the really seasoning on the rye mix. It's fantastic. I mean, but, but you know, I'm not prejudiced. If you have Chex Mix, it's fine. Not gonna be like, oh, you know, I prefer the the fancy one. Where's the Italian version? So I feel. The best way to kind of describe these two things is not like one surpasses the other. When you, A lot of the times when you're discussing a film that came from a book, you've got, of course, purists that it's, it's way different. You know, the book did it better. They missed so much. But it's kind of integral sometimes to filmmaking, which is a completely different art than novelization. And I know there's people that are probably cringing and mad and don't want to hear that. And not just novelization. The arts are not inclusive. They are not one and the same. And the format and how a book is written and some of the detail and some of the appreciation to detail and the perspective that would go into a book would end up being nonsensical in film versions. When it comes to Spider, you can truly take the book and you can take the movie and include them almost into the same entity, although we'll get to it later, but the endings are drastically different. Well, I don't know, that might be a misuse of drastically. They are different, but I, I, oh shit, see, there's... <laughs> Like Spider itself, there's not a great deal of organization to what's going to happen on this episode tonight. We'll hopefully have that same philosophical aspect of the ending when we get to that point of the show. In the film, Spider is largely non-communicative. The few times he does speak are usually muddled mutters, and we witness him throughout the film journaling, passionately. Whenever Pencil is in hand, he's going to town, and it's obviously something very, very important he's translating. But a very important detail that Cronenberg and Patrick McGraw added into the film that is not present in the novel is the fact that he's pretty much writing nonsense. He's got this very exquisite manner of writing, but it's his own coded language. And you find out that he's telling his story. Through Wandering Town, you get flashback sequences of Spider as a child. And these are the things that he's writing. The novel is written by Spider. The novel is from his perspective and his point of view. It is what he has been journaling the entire time, to where there is great extent and massive amount of detail to Spider's paranoia of the book being found because of the sacred things and the truths that he is writing. Now, I said this was a story of derangement of mind and memory. Spider is the story of a man who is literally haunted by his web of memories, many of them fabricated, many of them reflections of things that are only existing in a child's mind. This is a grown man who you find out at the very beginning of the film has been released from some sort of mental asylum, some sort of mental institute, but directly referenced as an asylum in the film. 
it almost seems ageless. The movie begins with this stunningly beautiful shot. It's a steady cam shot of a train pulling up and this just various crowd of people getting off the train. And one thing every time I watch this film I can't help but notice is the amount of people. There there are people of color, there are women, there are guys in leather jackets, there are people with short hair, there are older people, but they're all somewhat modern. They're all wearing especially at the time this film was made in 2002, a bit trendy clothes for that era, remind you. And they're sort of bustling and they're moving and there are people laughing and there are expressive children. There's uh, momentum. There's life being had. There's life being lived. And then scuttling off the train is our lead, our protagonist, Spider, played by the ultra-talented, wonderfully talented, Ray Fiennes. Guys, in one of my favorite movies... An inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object! And this character, Spider, is deeply complex. It's very hard to try and give you an estimate of, and this, I guess, comes off very insensitive, but what is wrong with him? What is going on with him, perhaps? I, I, like I said, I, I, it sounds insensitive, and I desperately don't mean it to come off that way. But... The character we're discussing here at hand, what you're presented to immediately with, is he is not like everybody else coming off of that train. He's not filled with vibrance. He's not filled with passion. He is not filled with the same wonderlust that all of them seem to have, even if they're just coming home from work. The general attitude of everyone else is very different than what we're presented with Spider. And what we're given with him is absolutely everything. In that first shot, you see him for exactly what he is, who he is, how he is presented to you, which is this kind of like hodgepodge Samuel Beckett character. And I see this described a lot, Cronenberg uses that terminology a lot, and really what it means is it's not so much like it's massively influenced by it, but just the general appearance. I mean, you can look up a picture of what Samuel Beckett looked like, and I'm not talking about Dr. Samuel Beckett, the inventor of the quantum leap, who is still somewhere out in time leaping to this very day. I'm talking about the Irish writer, who was nothing like the character Spider, a very esteemed writer, an eclectic gentleman, and he would wander the streets of Paris passionately, just, you know, kind of in his own thoughts and fugue, something that we'll see in the film as Spider just sort of wanders the east end of London, and he's dressed somewhat similar to, if you've read anything by Samuel Beckett, almost all of his characters are dressed like a very Irish with a nice overcoat, not in Spider's case, because he's sort of this hodgepodge of all these ideas, mind you, but speaking of Beckett, just an Irish stereotype. Is that me gold? What the hell are you? I'm a leprechaun, me dear. <laughs> a cardigan and a vest, a nice pair of slacks, a raincoat, you know, the Irish bicycle cap or whatever you want to call it, the dock boy cap, whatever the fucking dropkick Murphys wear, that hat. But you're also given directly a sense that time is very, very different to him. He, his whole appearance, his dress code, his mannerisms, they don't fit anyone else's. And that really is the only appearance, though very brief, of any other people. Now, there is a small cast that appears as he progresses throughout the film, but I mean in general. I mean, like, extras, people on the street, store owners, anybody else. It's a largely lonely movie, and what's kind of beautiful about that is this obviously is not what London is like ever. I don't think there's ever, since the invention of roads and cars and streetways, has London and the city, especially the East End, ever been empty. But in Spider's mind, because time has, it's existed, it, it has to exist, right? I mean, we age, we die, days pass, but it is a concept. And if you don't adhere to that concept, you 
technically can be stuck at a certain place or a certain time. And what you have is this grown man who really has never moved past the age of 13 that is now back 20 years later. For some reason, all we are established with at the beginning of the film is the fact that Spider is coming from this asylum to a halfway house. Now, as I said, the book ends where the movie begins. And the film gets established after Spider settles into his halfway house, run by Lynn Redgrave playing a character named Mrs. Wilkinson, who also appears in the book. We'll get there. We'll get back to that in a second. That's when he finally begins journaling. Now, to get to that point in the book, you have to get through the entire story, which he's been journaling the entire time. In the film, we don't know when he started writing or at what process he began retelling his story. Now, when you get to it, when you're reading the novel and you finally realize this point, it kind of hits you, oh my, oh, oh my god. Because the entire book is him unraveling Spider, whose real name is Dennis, but his mother affectionately calls him Spider. And it's something that I think is shown more intricately in the movie as to why he has that nickname. And there's a bit more appreciation to things like his love of string and collecting string and making spider webs in his room, uh, an invention Patrick McGraw aptly added into the, the film. I guess that's the word of the night, aptly. I've said it like three times. Oh, and you know, this is something to note I think is always really fascinating. Not often do writers get to do the writing when it comes to the film version. A lot of the times the novels are sold, it's out of their hands. It's usually a very generous move for the director to let the writer be a part of it. But in this case, the script was delivered to Cronenberg with an actual note from Ray Fiennes, how he, he was so desperate and wanted to play Spider. Ended up waiting four years to do the role. There's a lot of setbacks, a lot of technical stuff that happened that I don't think is really important to what I want to talk about tonight. There is, there's a lot of fascinating stories to the whole behind this, but it's David Cronenberg and everything about that dude is pretty fascinating. And it's, I don't know, it's just fine artistry. It's just uh, amazing craftsmanship. You don't have to like or know anything about watches to appreciate a really well-made Rolex and just go, that's fucking cool looking, that's a nicely made watch, and Cronenberg is a, a Rolex of filmmakers. The novel is an articulated portrayal of Spider's spiral out of control and his lack of grip with reality as he picks and chooses his memories. So, the concept of the movie and the book meld together to the point that I feel they almost can become companion pieces, that you can enjoy both of them and consider themselves to be part of the same universe, that you can read the inner workings of Spider. And it's, it's, it's very strange, and Cronenberg has said that he felt the Spider of the book and the Spider of the movie are not one and the same, and I beg to differ, because I think what happened with his transference of this art from book to film and how things were captured and with his direction of art and with his direction of motion and assigning how Spider was going to be transcribing all of his memories in this nonsensical, almost hieroglyphic style script. It makes the book and the Spider that is portrayed in that book almost more important because it's his artistry. It's, 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 being, it's like being a painter and never being able to somebody understand your painting. Nobody ever getting it, that it's written in this false language. So even if it's found, his side of the story or what he believes to be true can never actually be told. But if you can sit down and read the McGraw book, it's almost like you've been exposed to that. So it's really like having a second piece of it, another piece to the puzzle, which what this whole experience is and what Spider is, especially the film, is a puzzle, it's just all the pieces have been crammed back together in the wrong way. Because as we learn through reading, and what's presented to you on screen, is most of these memories are fabricated. Most of the memory Spider wasn't actually there for, it's what he presumed to happen. It's from his child mind, him seeing his parents fighting and portraying his father in one essence of, 
he's he's demonic. He's a bad person, and he treats my mother horribly. And him taking that concept and letting it grow and him presuming, well, this must obviously be what he's doing. This is definitely what he did because he didn't do it in front of me, and I can't figure out any other reason for this to happen. But there is something else that's a key to the story here. And again, I just don't know how to say it where it doesn't come off insensitive, but there is something wrong with Spider. It's never said in the film. In the novel, there's a flashback, if you can call it that, Again, it's all Spider writing his memories, so absolutely everything, though at some point in times it does get narrative, and it's sort of odd, and I don't know if this was possibly the direction, but I almost feel that it was a take on Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is a story told by a narrator telling the story of a narrator telling a story, into which Spider is narrating his story to the journal, but it begins to form a narrative inside of its own narrative of him telling the story. You following me? But there are a lot of, um... I think little deep pokes at things like Heart of Darkness throughout the story. He likes to pretend that he's part of the shadows and continuously mentions uh, in his own narrative writing in the journal that he thought of himself as a little African boy and uh, his obsession with the waterways and the Thames River. and It just felt like a little Conrad inspired there. But Joseph Conrad is one of the most prolific writers of the 19th and 20th century, I would say, translated into almost every language and responsible for one of the most prolific films of the 1970s, Apocalypse Now, which was based on Heart of Darkness. Despite being in an asylum for 20 years, Spider is completely detached from reality. All the symptoms that he shows and that are shown to you in this flashback sequence in the novel is that he had some form of schizophrenia. That's what his doctors had diagnosed him with, and that's the words that McGraw used. That's what he injected into the audience's mind. Now, mind you, you are reading from the memories of Spider, so these are just things that he could have heard thrown around because he is so detached. He has this whole concept, and it's brought up very, very heavily throughout the books of these two rooms in his head. There's the front room. That's where Dennis lives. Dennis is bad. Dennis is a bad boy that defies his father defies his own reality in opposition to what everyone else is experiencing because it discomforts him. Spider lives in a hole in the back of his mind, and Spider's a good boy. Why was Spider in an asylum for 20 years? He's accused with killing his mother. He feels his father did the deed. He has clear memories, memories that he feels are almost more vibrant when he thinks about them than they were in the first place because he's making them up, because he wasn't there. Whether it's schizophrenia or anything else is really not the question. Now, in the novel especially, a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the issues Spider writes about in great massive detail compares to something like Capgris delusion, which is an irrational belief that someone they know has been taken over by an imposter, somebody else, invasions of the body snatcher type thing. But there's no dainty way to say it. He's completely scrambled. And film and novel-wise, young Spider is around 13 years old when these things begin manifesting in his head. And the problem at hand is his mother and father aren't getting along and he has a great deal of care for her. There's a lot of directions that you could take this to that would deeper expose the mindset of Spider. Those are directions that you can personally go into. I'm just going to try and stick to the bare bones here. He's going into puberty. He's completely confused by sexuality. His parents don't seem to get along. He's got this awful fear of his father. But when his parents manage to get back together... Seemingly, we don't really ever have a direction of what goes on in the parent's life. We know at the beginning of the film and the book that there is a very rocky relationship between mother and father. We know that Spider has a bit of a fear for his father and a disdain of even being in the same room with him and has a great 
affection for his mother and the time they spend together. But we don't know how they have their own relationship or if they fix things or how they talk about things. Every Saturday night, she joins him at the pub. Eventually, a tart is seen, and this Cronenberg uses the description, McGraw uses it endlessly in the book. I guess that's a very nice British way of saying whore, a tart. And I'll remind the audience, nobody says whore better than Joey Pants. But all this over some dead hua. Hey, she was a hua. She's a possible prostitute, a bar hag. Young Spider eventually sees her because he has to come fetch his father. I got ahead of myself bringing up the whole Saturday night thing. But there is a regime, there is a regularity to the things that happen in Spider's life and with his parents that we are allowed to see from his perspective. And that's why I had brought that up and jumped the horse a little bit. Let's just take it a couple steps back. Let's go back into, let's just introduce really where the movie begins when we get a first flashback from Spider. And the way this is handled and the way Cronenberg dealt with the subject matter is why I think it's really important that you see this film before you listen to this. Because I've already, like I said, said way too much and it's going to ruin the entire experience. You don't know at this point, when Spider is just kind of adult Ray Fiennes roaming the east side of London, what's going on. And it just is like this awful, creepy horror moment of him watching this family having this almost nice moment where dinner's ready and the son's being told to go fetch his father and then it slowly starts to sink in that you're witnessing his memories as he is writing in his journals and that's our introduction to the father character bill in the movie horace in the novel played by another infinitely talented actor gabriel byrne and all of this mind you from spider's perspective what we're introduced to is a bit of a harsh man and this is when he sees sight of the tart see i didn't speak too soonly over i just love saying it and it's over and over and over again i would love a tart count in the book i would love to get an actual word count even in the movie it's got to be said at least 20 times and this point is where i think as an audience member you're allowed to start making a lot of your own observations or piecing the puzzle together or cramming pieces of that puzzle wrongfully however you want to. Because initially, the woman we see is just some blonde in the bar. But the next time we see her, she's played by Miranda Richardson, who plays Mrs. Clegg, Spider's mother. So we begin to really start doubting the integrity of Spider here. Throughout the novel, you have doubted his integrity from the beginning. He even tells you, I don't re I remember stuff really poorly, and it seems like I make a lot of this up. I think 30 pages in, he says, you know what, I actually filled all the gaps to my entire life while I was in Canada. I wasn't even there when I came up with how I remembered this stuff. So you know immediately that you have a very, very untrustworthy storyteller. But unfortunately, that's the only person telling the story. So you're in for this entire ride. And what you have to do is play detective and attempt to find the pieces and figure out what truly happened. Thankfully, through Spider's memories... Despite the fact that they are so painful, he has created massive delusions to avoid them, you will be exposed to the harsh and bitter reality. Like I said, we don't know the inner workings of Spider's parents' relationship. We don't know if they start having a happier life. The mother is very judgmental over how much the father drinks, and he goes to the pub constantly. Spider has to fetch him and come home. His dad is very, very grouchy. You get in the novelization a fear of when he drinks because he becomes aggressive because every little thing, like the scratching of a plate, just drives him insane. But two, you have this kind of like worry of obviously something's a little different about this child and nobody seems to be witnessing it. But again, it's sort of an like the movie is definitely ageless. You can tell by the locations and how it's presented to you, how it's shot, how it's filmed, the the costuming, the dialogue that it's sometime in the 40s or 50s. In the novel, you're given a date. The novel takes place in real time in 1957. 
So 20 years before that is when whatever incident that happened sent Spider to the asylum, the death of his mother that he says his father killed, but he was blamed for. And we're getting there. It's hard attempting to traverse this fine line because there is an immaculate amount of detail that is provided within the novel, and it truly is the inner working of Spider's mind, and in his mind, he's brilliantly articulate. In his mind, he's coy, and he's savvy, and he, he understands things, and he's been playing a game the entire time. He's always had these two personas, Dennis and Spider, and he's always protected Spider because he feels that who is his true self. But he's incredibly delusional. And it's very forward, and it's very in-your-face, and it's alarming to the fact that he has almost as much freedom as he does, which is explained, is, is just incidental. He was, he was given his freedom and these incidents that happen, and the connection of this puzzle and the piecing of this puzzle, which is the story of Spider, is completely because of uh, overcrowding in the asylum. Again, something, this doesn't show up so much in the movie. Uh, this is how the, the book can work in as a counterpiece, as a companion piece, per se. Spider's thoughts and fantasies and, and mental illness is projected on everyone. So when he wasn't a witness to something happening, he would just assume and it would almost be an entity in his head. It would almost become something talking to him. Now, throughout the novel, there is a great deal of manifestations of, of, of things talking to him, inanimate objects, light bulbs telling him to kill people. His room at Mrs. Wilkinson's house is in the top of the house with an attic directly above it where he hears awful noises telling him to do horrible things, roaring imps. He constantly assumes even the smallest noise, like a train rushing under him on a bridge, is an imp. A lot of fictional creatures that are used as ideas to sort of manifest the fact that he has quote-unquote demons in his head. So for the most part of the book, you play detective attempting to find what is true and what is false while a sprawling narrative of Spider just wandering around the east end of London with a great fear of returning to his home street of Kitchener. The film manages to take all of that and show it in such an articulate and beautiful manner that even if you don't like the story, I feel that you could appreciate just how gorgeous the cinematography and the art direction of this film is. Because while Spider is remembering things, he is present in all of his memories, almost as if he is the writer, director, and editor of his memories, which essentially is what he's doing, because again, to remind you, everything that you are seeing presented is from Spider's point of view, and most of these things are fabricated and altered in his sense of protecting himself and whatever else is going on inside of him. Dennis and Spider. In the novel, he even discusses knowing something isn't quite right about him. And he constantly worries that all of these things are something he made up in his head, but that's like a second guess to him. It's never actually what he pulls the trigger on. He always decides that there is something horrible that's going to happen, just something pivotally awful is always going to happen. And you can make your own diagnosis of whatever he's suffering from. That directly wasn't Cronenberg's point. McGraw, on the other hand, wanted to give you something that would be a representation of somebody suffering from schizophrenia, but that was not uh, the matter of importance whatsoever to David Cronenberg, which is a testament to his body of work. This film features the exact same themes that his entire body of work have featured. The message is always very, very clear, and this is an arguable statement. I know it will bother a lot of people, but I feel his later work is, is much more successful than his earlier work. Videodrome is one of my favorite films of all time. I, I have a great deal of respect for it, and it's very important to me, but I think things like Spider, Cosmopolis, A Dangerous Method, those are some of the <sighs> premier staples for me. I mean, that's it's not even just so much the storytelling, it's seeing how he has managed to take this story for so long and, and how he has changed and adapted it and that being a big part of the message of changing and adapting to things, something that Spider just completely neglects his entire life. 
20 years of being away, he fabricated something to protect himself from the absolute reality of the accusation he has been handed with that he killed his mother. He firmly believes that his father did it, but truly does it come down to the line that he, one, is incredibly mentally ill, but this entire idea of the tart. She existed to some extent. She was a figure he saw at a bar one day, and it became an idea of a, a young a young person's lust, a young person's the lack of knowledge of sexuality, the confusion of their parents' sexuality while the blooming mental illness takes forth in their life. And there are so many different directions and there are so many different perspectives that you can look at sympathy-wise with young Spider. And you can feel pain for him. But what you have to realize when you're dealing with adult Spider is they're fantasies, but yes, they are lies. He is lying to you. And in his mind, this, this book is so precious, it's, it's hidden. And it's not just in his mind. He goes out of his way to hide the book everywhere. Every time he finishes it, he has to find a new hiding place until finally he puts it in a gas stove flue. It's a non-working one, which is something we've neglected to talk about, but we're getting in that direction right now. Yes. He manically journals in both film and novel to suspend his reality, to avoid the reality, to avoid the fact that he is so close to where the most detrimental things of his life happen. So he lies to us. And I mean, the entire point of writing it down was to sustain his story and to sustain his side of the story that no one believed. What we're allowed to be privy of in the novel is some of the facts that he feels he has lied to doctors and, and professionals for 20 years because he still hasn't come to terms with what actually happened. This, again, is some of the shock value that truly, I think, makes this film a horror movie. And if you've not seen it before, when you start getting to these points and you start questioning what you're seeing on screen is what really makes it effective. And I think some of the power behind Cronenberg's vision with this, you are not watching Spider, you are Spider. So when you're confused watching this film, the entire direction and point is falling upon you. You can't back off. You can't go, I'm not getting this. That's the point. You are getting it, and it's going to hit you wonderfully. And I feel at the end of it, the silent bomb, the sorrow, the what-ifs, I think that is, is more horrific than some big slash him up I shot him six times! I, I shot him in the heart! That... It can't have gotten very far. Come on. I shot him six times! Yeah. This guy, this man, is, he's not human! bullshit ending and it's whatever because yeah the whole thing horror death by dvd we love it it's great it's fine this too is horror though you have to open up your mind to what the aspect is horror and horrifying and horrific and all of these different things but what's more horrifying than losing your mind other than finding it and it not being <laughs> i mean there's a lot of different ways you can take that and that is a, a crazy statement but I think the human mind is one of the scariest things ever, and I mean, let's go back to the origins of some of the premier horror movies, something I think Spider borrows from a little bit, Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock. This movie has, I think, the pacing and the vibe almost of, I wouldn't say early, not like British Hitchcock, but right around the era of Psycho. I mean, I don't think it's directly influenced by something like Psycho, but the anticipation that you feel as you start to collect knowledge on spider's life and you start to piece things together and you start as a detective as you would reading the book figuring out the truth behind some of the story or doubting his aspects of truth it's it's just anxiety writing and it starts driving you crazy and i think that's incredibly effective and i think that's something that is is lacking in slashers and horror in general not that this is a fucking slasher at all so spider is accused of killing his mother and he strongly feels that his father did it why is that 
In Spider's young memories, he claims that his father was off with the tart, who he had been getting handjobs for under a bridge after fixing her pipes. None of these things are witnessed. All of the memories Spider has of this are just presumption because he just thinks of this man as a demon because he has no concept in, in his mind what happens outside of his door, what happens outside of existence, but also his mental illness definitely needs to be remembered. It's not just this entire young, confused child thing. He's 13 years old, and he more than likely, let's just say, has a form of schizophrenia. All of these things are manipulations of his mind to comfort and protect himself and to protect his psyche. He has a passion and a great deal of love for his mother. And again, I said there's a lot of context and things that you can read into on your own as a viewer. And it's almost as if he's sort of, without the knowledge of sexuality, trying to compete for her affection with his father. So when they start doing things together, suddenly he starts envisioning the tart. He starts envisioning this awful woman. And this is when the actresses change. And that's really what makes things pivotal with the direction of what Cronenberg presented to us. Is it's very clever and you don't notice it at first. You, I, there's plenty of reviews that you can even find. Most people don't notice until the end of the movie that Miranda Richardson ends up playing three roles because Spider can't differentiate not so much women of power, not so much power in general, but when it comes down to almost his entitlement, he can't differentiate anything else as a villain other than this tart. And so anything that he has a, a headbutt with, per se, becomes the embodiment of what took his entire life away, which... Definitely, we could get a little Greek with it and say it was a little mother love, not even just Greek, you know, some Freud, which Cronenberg made a really great movie about. It's not so much about him, but young, those guys, it's good. A dangerous method. Check that one out, too. And the novel Spider regularly writes about how he doesn't feel he's writing, but he's being written, which makes me think that he's auto-writing, that some of these things are just absolute utter lies and fabricated memories. What you're given in the Cronenberg translation is almost a truth to that, because you don't understand whatever he's writing down. You understand that it's nonsense. You can see that it's very detailed and that he's created some form of language. But then when you're presented with a lot of these memories, I think it's very clear cut. No, he wasn't there. There's no way that he could have had that memory of it. Spider's mother, wandering around town looking for her husband, goes to this place called the Allotments. In the novel, it's spoken of as a sanctuary for Spider's father. The houses were built back to back to back with little alleyways in between them, so the urge to garden, which apparently, as David Cronenberg says, is a very English urge, could not be had unless you had an allotment, which Spider's father did. It had a little shed on it, and he grew potatoes and various fruits and vegetables. His mother wanders there and finds his father fucking the tart. All of this again, which is just coming from Spider's head, the entire sequence where he gets the hand job under the bridge, where he goes and works on the pipes, none of these things happen. They're all delusions. They're all false memories. They're puzzle pieces that he has crammed into the wrong place. Not even. They're just blank flipped upside down pieces. They're not even part of that puzzle. They don't fit because they're not real. And she's killed in a fit of rage that he presumes his father has acted out upon her, this evil villain, and that the tart, Hilda in the book, Yvonne in the film, is, is relishing in. She's so happy. She's not going to have to be a prostitute anymore. She can live in a home and everything's going to be great. And from here on out, the delusions further as Spider has no differential. He cannot even see his mother in this person anymore. And this is where we, I guess, get starting to be psychological because as a, an audience member, you're allowed to 
take whatever perspective that you want. Is the father cheating? Was the blonde ever actually real? I like to think that at one point there was a real woman that Spider saw and became this entity, became this monster in his head that has invaded his home and taken his family over and wants to eat him and destroy his life. But in actuality, it's just his mother, and a lot of it could be sides of her that he isn't comfortable seeing, her sexuality, him realizing that his mother and his father fuck. Name's Buck. I'm raring to fuck. His mother wearing lipstick and dressing nice. Uh, he starts seeing the tart as this fat woman wearing her clothes, and his mother was a thin, almost boyish figure, and now it's this voluptuous woman that hardly fits the clothes. Is it the fact that he never saw a woman in a sexual nature before and is so confused by the thoughts that he just doesn't comprehend what's going on, so he is erasing his own memories and creating new things? That's up for you to decide. And that's completely some of the joy of this because it's like an insane Rubik's Cube of just shaping and trying to figure out what's going on and what different perspectives are happening, but it definitely has to be noticed and addressed that Spider is, is very, very mentally ill. Very, very mentally ill to the point that he definitely should not be out on the streets. I mean, it's alarming. Even his behavior at the beginning of the film when he gets off the train, the fact that he, he can't even really compose speech. He can't even address people. And that's the beauty of having a companion piece, something like the novel, and being able to see his articulation just flowing. Because Patrick McGraw is a beautiful writer, a, an exquisite, beautiful writer. I always hated this term, and years ago I taught a little bit of English, and there was this poster in one of the classrooms that said, easy writing is damn hard. And it annoyed the hell out of me because it's just kind of dumb. It's just kind of hokey. It was a big white poster with just block letter black text. No creation behind it. But if Andy Warhol would have done it, it might have been genius. Easy writing is damn hard. That's something that could be applied to something like Patrick McGraw because it's it's poetic. It's devastatingly poetic. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, I had to look up a couple words here and there. There are some $2 words that I definitely didn't know. But the flow and the ebb and the direction he manages to push you into, you, you actually become... I, I got to an extent that even just turning pages was driving me insane because... I was hungered almost by needing to know what was going on with Spider and, and just the progress of his mental decay. I mean, the movie and the book present a beautiful downslide. You get to just see the dismal nature of the human mind, the web of lies that people can spin and how awful it is to be stuck inside of these web of lies, your, your reality, your identity. And there are so many questions that you are asked too, like what is an identity? What is even being me? What defines me as being me? And what happens when that's stripped away from you? Something like schizophrenia and a lot of mental illnesses in general, it's not just pinpoint, because I'm no fucking professional, by no means do I mean to even speak of any of these mental illnesses that I've brought up with any manner of professionalisms or make accusations or claims or say anything. You know, I'm not going in that direction. I'm, I'm discussing a very specific subject matter here and the context within that subject matter, so... Let's just keep that in mind. With something like that, having an identity is, is very hard to grasp at. And Cronenberg, I think, says it really fittingly himself. I don't know if it's in an interview or the commentary for Spider. The energy that is expressed trying to have an identity, sometimes people with mental illness, especially something as severe as what Spider may or may not be afflicted from, there is no room for it. And there are little subtleties, like he constantly smokes, and that is some of his pure joy within film and the novel. It's one of the few pleasures that he's allowed himself to have just because it's a little bit of the regimentation that he was allowed to live with when he was 
in Canada, as he says throughout the entire novel. It's kind of funny. He overhears in one of his delusions as a child that his father told the neighbors, oh, his mother went off to Canada and gets this whole aspect that quite possibly punishment or death is being in Canada. Which is, it's, it's David Cronenberg's from Toronto. He's a Canadian, so I think there definitely is some, some cleverness there with that being an addition into things. But that's fucking hysterical. So he, uh, he, he constantly refers to him being away. I think it's uh, honestly like page 135, page 135 to maybe a page 140 in the novel when he finally mentions he was at an asylum. But he largely will reference it throughout the entire book that he was in Canada. In the film, right off the bat, you're given that allowance of knowledge that he has been in an asylum. And there are characters and there are instances that are in the film that are not in the movie. But that is, again, touching back on something at the very beginning of the show. The translation and difference between film and novels. And they are definitely not one and the same. Certain things just are not going to be fluent. Certain things are going to be pointless. Some of the early versions of this script featured massive voiceovers, pretty much reading Ray Fine's reading from the book dialogue and filling in the points and what was happening with Spider. And so much of that almost would have turned it into a Scooby-Doo sort of thing, or, or some Lifetime original would have taken away from the stark and bitter depiction of what you are exposed to, and what you're exposed to is through the eyes of Spider, his reality. So when you're confused, it makes sense, because he has no fucking idea what's going on, and we're watching it through his perspective. I think a large point of the movie is the emotion and the, the low lows of the ride. We always talk about the highs and the high points of horror and slashers and how it's like an opera or a roller coaster and they are these insane kill them all Texas Chainsaw Massacre when you finally get to that ice hook scene and you don't really see anything. But the whole idea of it, the whole thought of it, now that's a whole different story. That hurts. You even kind of cringe your back and arch it a little bit every time you watch the scene. You've got the same sort of horror, but the way it's delivered to you is so chaotic with Spider, I think it, it turns out to be heartbreaking. Which you could take the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the same way too. I mean, think of their families. Thinking of Sally's family. Think about Sally's family learning about how these things happened and her friend's family and all of these people that are going to be affected by this tragedy. There's always some form of depression and, and just bleak nihilism that could be offered in overlooking into the story. And that's what really makes Spider unique is that all of it is given to you. And that is the perspective of, of Spider. It is woe. Absolute woe. And isolation. And there's a misconception that isolation is being completely isolated from people. You can be isolated in a room full of people. Trust me. I know. Spider, reading it and seeing it, extends that so horrifically that you just can't help but feel alone by the end of it because you've been betrayed by your senses, you've been betrayed by your protagonist. When you get the unveiling, and I guess we're at that point, he fucking did kill his mother. When you get to that unveiling, it's... It's just, it's woeful, man. I mean, there really aren't a lot of other words in my lexicon that I could throw down for that. It's sad. Real sad stuff! He formed this detached web of disillusionment. He, he literally distorted his memories because he didn't want to deal with the fact that his mental illness caused the death of his mother. This case of mistaken identity led to a massive web literally being built by Spider, which turned the gas on in the house. His drunken mother was asleep in the kitchen and succumbed to it. His father comes home and drags him out of the house, and once the mother's body is exposed to us, we clearly see who it is. The very first role played by Miranda Richardson, Mrs. Clegg, the blonde tart no more. But at the same time, in real time, as Spider is writing all of this, Lynn Redgrave's character, Mrs. Wilkinson, 
is now Miranda Richardson. So it's this disillusionment even with his own recovery of the memory that he is at such extremes. But here is where the differences lie. The last part of the book and the last part of the movie drastically are different. You know what? I said that at the beginning of the show, and I, I, it's not so much drastically different as they're just two different things. But it's not that drastic. The last part of the book is in, quote-unquote, Canada. Spider talks about his 20 years in the asylum and how he pieced together his memories, how he found some forms of solace. It really gives you an allowance of his broken mind. It gives you an idea of how deeply troubled he actually is and how these events have caused years and years and years of fugue just a massive 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 shroud of gray fog around his entire life which is something he astutely finds identification in and talks about a lot in the novel of how much safety he has in bad weather and stormy days because of the lack of vision and he has no vision in his own sight and mind it becomes almost murderous and the anticipation and the anxiety begins rising as you fear that spider is going to do something awful and that he is going to finally get rid of his arch nemesis that he is going to get rid of yvonne aka hilda who is now his caretaker mrs wilkinson and the film travels along a similar path although it excludes the entirety of his memories and writing about canada you do get these brief glimpses and i'm saying that loosely he's not actually in canada he's like in sussex he's in like a, a country mental institute somewhere near london but not that far so his whole idea even of that is warped that he believes that he was abroad in canada for years and years and years just because in a delusion he thought he overheard his father say that about his mother who was in the house the entire time who she isn't yvonne but she was yvonne because yvonne is just a, a form of his mental illness i mean it's just an idea of him not being able to register so many different things i've already discussed the whole sexuality theme and that's kind of where my beliefs go to it but i don't want to stain you the audience member if you want to go back and look at this again which i hope this kind of can serve as something if you've seen spider that you can look at it through a different point i don't want to stain in your mind my ideas and i do think that there is a lot of uh Freudian sexual nature and the aspect of him coming into age and puberty and his mental illness developing as well as his sexuality and his confusion with uh, his, the, the parental figures and his, his confusion with his father and trying to fight for being the aspect of his mother's affection. And then, of course, this whole tart comes forward. There's a lot that you can you can really digest with this. There's a lot that you can move into with, and especially using the novel as a companion piece, I think it opens up almost more pleasure to the experience of watching the movie. So many things were directly translated beautifully, aptly, there's that word of the night again, by McGraw and then caught on film by Cronenberg that it's just a very great poetic justice to the original work. And I think... One of the greatest things that makes this movie successful is the amount of beautiful artistic integrity that absolutely everyone had when it came to the creation of, of course, you know, you've got David Cronenberg, who's just one of the, the greatest artists of all time, uh, just just one of the greatest artists of all time. Ray Fiennes did so much work with his approach to Spider, all of the writing, all of the, the stylized writing for Spider's journals he came up with so he could have fluency to it. Even the idea of Spider muttering. He wasn't really supposed to be vocal or have any sort of vocalization throughout the film, and that was something that he brought to the table. Spider's walk, too, is something that's very important. Again, going back to that sort of Samuel Beckett-ish, wandering, strange, tramp-like character. 
And then, of course, the amazing performance from Miranda Richardson. And Cronenberg, you know, previously with Dead Ringers in 1988, he had Jeremy Irons playing two roles. And I think the point of Jeremy Irons playing two roles was to really showcase how great Jeremy Irons is, which he is. He's great. Watch Dead Ringers from 1988 and tell me I'm wrong. Jeremy Irons, dude, in that movie, he's so good. Really, too, that's one of my favorite Cronenberg films. I think that's another unconventional film. You know another one that usually blows people's minds when I tell them this? M. Butterfly. I love that movie. It's weird. I love when Cronenberg writes. He's a great writer. Some of my favorite movies of all time, like Videodrome, he wrote. But some of the films that are translated from previous texts, M. Butterfly, Spider specifically, they're just so eloquent. And that's, again, a, a good point conveying my argument that he is one of the greatest artists of all time, David Cronenberg, is the fact that he can tell his own story very well, but he can tell others just as articulately with as much justice to what the integrity of the story had in the first place. And M. Butterfly, that's a great story. You can find a copy of that movie. I do recommend it. It's a beautiful and heartbreaking story, as are all of David Cronenberg's stories. Spider, still the same thing. It's a heartbreaking but beautiful story. I think it really might make you look at yourself a little bit, especially with the conveyance of memories. You always will have a memory of things that you participated in, but I can definitely say I'm guilty of fabricating memories. I truly can understand the essence of it, but when you try to identify with the character, when you try to connect with Spider, I think you're lost in even a deeper fugue because the more and more you're shown and the more that is represented with his unstable nature, you just don't know what's going to happen next. And that, too, is one of the greatest horror representations in the movie. I think that is horror. It's fear. Definitely a hat off to Ray Fiennes in this performance because he's essentially playing a 13-year-old. He's playing somebody that has never grown. That yes, they are a six foot four man with thinning hair and a long coat. Everyone that sees them sees them as that. But inside their own thought and head, they've never progressed from age 13 to now. Spider has been lost completely since the events that changed his life when he was 13 years old. And that's the making of the movie. I think the end of the movie is a surprise to the audience as well as Spider. And mind you, we are seeing this through Spider's eyes. So I think that's incredibly effective, and I think that's the jump scare, essentially. Surprise and revelation. You finally get to see the truth behind what you've gritted your teeth over for the last hour with this anxiety just attempting to have some sort of connection to our protagonist. Being able to read the novel and expose yourself to the inner working and the inner thoughts, the intricate nature, the anxiety, the disdain, the fear, all these things that Patrick McGraw assaults you with, I think complement greatly the novel. And I think as a whole, Cronenberg managed to accentuate all of those and supplement some of them. There's a lot of hallucinations throughout the novel. Spider is very, very, very unstable. And a lot of those things would have been traditionally perfect for a David Cronenberg film, one of which involved a potato that started bleeding and pulsating and shining weird, creepy lights. Sounds perfect for him, right? But the direction wasn't truly meant to be taken into mental illness when you're watching Spider. The deep fog that you are lost in, and that is the representation of horror, and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as effective. 
It works beautifully, almost like a Lovecraft aspect when you're reading the novel, because you don't know what's true and you don't know what's false. Some of the things that Spider has told you, obviously there's backup for, because other people were in the room. But that doesn't mean anything, because he has complete memories that he wasn't even present for. The beauty of it is the ride. All of these passions can never be understood. All of Spider's passions, all of his thoughts, all of these memories, whether true or false, that he has written down can never be understood. And can you, or me, or anybody else? Could you sit down and write somebody else's story without injecting your own memories into it? It's a weird question, but it's one that might make you think a little bit. And I hope give you a perspective of checking out this movie. It's not widely available. It's not often spoken about. And I don't know how much justice I did to the beautiful work, which is the novel and the film on this episode. I have a lot of passion for it. Reflecting on the body of David Cronenberg's work as I've grown older, I, I truly think it's at the top. I won't say it's my favorite David Cronenberg film, but it's, it's, it's close up there. I actually won't say what my favorite David Cronenberg film is. There's got to be a little bit of mystery on the show, right? I have endless notes. I could go on forever. I, 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 I had so many different ideas, and I don't know how this turned out. This is a real passion piece, I guess. I had read this novel previously, and it had been years. I had forgotten so many different aspects of it. I forgot how complex everything was. And you can't just really look at a David Cronenberg picture and think of it as what it is, because essentially it's always masked as something else, and there's always another message, one of which is always keep your antenna up, something obviously Spider never managed to do. That's a whole story for another day, and a whole different Cronenberg concept. So check out Spider, tell me what you think, read the book, see the movie. Turning you on to new movies is what gives me pleasure in life. And remember... Reality is what you make it. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. We'll see you next week. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. experience. Hank, the world's greatest, discovers the lament configuration, a puzzle box that unlocks the pleasures and pain of heaven and hell. Upon opening the box, he is greeted by the Cenobites, members of a communal religious order dedicated to the darkest art of suffering, sickness, and pain. Led by a demon called Dickhead, once a human known as I, Alexander Nash, the Cenobites are now unleashed upon the Earth, ready to rain hell. Tear your soul apart. Find out what happens next week on Death by DVD. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.
herramienta para adaptarnos a los nuevos tiempos, reinventarnos, de, desaparecer, de, para crear un nuevo sistema moderno y eficaz que ya se entiende por todas partes y que nos ha convertido en un banco grande, el más grande del mundo. No serás un cliente más, ni yo, ni un banco, ni nada más. El centro de nuestras estrategias son...